You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, church, I'd invite you to open your Bibles together with me to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to consider today two small verses, verse 12 and verse 13. This is hard to believe. It's the second last sermon in our series that we started in January through the book of Colossians. And at the end of the book, Paul regularly in his letters gives uh, greetings from some of his companions to the church. And we see that again at the end of chapter 4, greetings from some of Paul's companions to the church in Colossae. But we're focusing on one specific person who gives a specific greeting and gets a recommendation from Paul, and that's a man of important significance to the Colossian church named Epaphras. Sometimes it's hard to know what to wear on a hot summer day, especially when, whether you go to work or go to church, you know the AC is going to be pumping inside. You know, often when my wife will ask me, you know, what's the temperature to figure out what she's going to wear today, but we know we're going to go to church, she'll ask, say, what's the temperature? Okay, but will it be cold inside the church? Because she knows that outside it's going to be boiling hot, but inside it might be a little frigid. So she might wear a cardigan even though it's like 27 degrees outside. And sometimes I feel that way myself with like, should I wear pants? Should I wear shorts? Sometimes I feel like the best solution is to wear those like zip off trousers, you know, the dad pants that you can zip it off. And I mean, I got two kids now, form over fashion, right? Function over fashion. Influencing others in relationships is kind of like temperature. Whether we're at church or with friends, we're at family or at work, listening to a podcast, watching a show on Netflix, wherever we are, whoever we're with, we are all acclimatizing to the people that are around us. We are influencing others. Others are influencing us. Is there a way that we can use our influence so that we can make a real difference in the church? We're focusing specifically on these two short verses, looking at the man Epaphras, because he was a guy who did that well, who knew he could have a measure of influence, who harnessed, harnessed that measure of influence, and who made a real difference in the church. And this is what we're going to learn today from God's word. Each of us can make a real difference in the church. The question that we're going to try and answer then is how. Each of us can make a real difference in the church. It's our job. We have the tools and the power. How can we do that? Epaphras' life shows us the model of how we can make a real difference. Each of us can make a real difference in the church. So as we often do, would you stand with me to honor God as we read his word together? Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 to verse 13. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those who are in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. You can take your seats, church. Epaphras' life shows us a model of how each of us can make a real difference in the church. We're going to learn four ways, 
four ways from the life and model of Epaphras how we each can make a real difference in the church. And here's the first one. We can make a real difference when we gladly belong within the church. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, Epaphras was with him in Rome. But notice how in verse 12, he was identified as one of you. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. Epaphras was with Paul in Rome, but Colossae was his hometown. Colossae was a, ho- uh, excuse me, Epaphras was a hometown boy, and Colossae was his hometown church. Colossae was in ancient Rome, what would be now southwestern modern-day Turkey. And it was in a region of Rome that was called the region or province of Asia. And Colossae was located right along the river called the Lycus River. And the Lycus River was in this valley. And in the valley, Colossae was part of this tri-city region, kind of like how, you know, Cambridge and Waterloo and, and what's that third city? Kitchener, right, they make up the tri-city of that region, right? Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea represented this tri-city region in the province of Asia in the Roman Empire. And we learn a few things about Epaphras from the book of Colossians that demonstrate that this hometown boy was really, really loyal to his hometown church. The way that we see that is first that he was likely the first convert from his hometown to Christianity. Um, The city Ephesus was in the same Roman province of Asia, and it was about 150 kilometers away from Colossae. The apostle Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and it says in Acts chapter 18 that for two years he preached the word of God so that all the inhabitants of Asia heard. So, Ephesus, Colossae, within the region of Asia for two years. During those two years, probably Epaphras went and heard about Paul, went from Colossae to Ephesus, got saved, and came back. So not only was he the first convert from Colossae, he was also likely the first evangelist in Colossae in the Tri-City area. And we probably recognize that because Paul says in verse 13 that he worked hard for the Colossians and those in Laodicea. But he wasn't just this like street preacher on a soapbox who was shouting at people in the street corner once telling them the gospel. He was not only the first convert and the first evangelist, but likely Epaphras was probably the first pastor of the church in Colossae. Turn one page to the left and you'll see the way that he pastored the church. Colossians chapter one, starting at verse five. Middle of verse five, it says... Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does so does amongst you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. That word learned is the same word in the original language as the word disciple, just in the, in the verb form. So the noun, disciple, the verb, learn, or make disciples. See, Epaphras didn't just evangelize, but he systematically pastored, taught them God's word to help them grow in their discipleship. Hometown boy, first convert, first evangelist, first pastor, dude was dedicated to these people. He was one of them. 
He was loyal to them. He was dedicated to them. I wonder, do you see yourself as one of the people here at this church in Markham? Do you have a sense of loyalty, not to the building of the organization, but to your brothers and sisters in Christ here? Do you have a sense of dedication that your good is tied to each other's good here, whether you're at the 11 a.m. service, the 9 a.m. service, the 5.30 service? Do you feel that way? Like Epaphras, we can be dedicated to make a real difference in the church when we gladly belong within the church to the people of the church. And there are a lot of practical things that you could do to belong to the church. I could tell you, go to the barbecue afterwards and make some friends. Okay, that might work. I could tell you, go to step one and step two. Should that, I hope you do, and that could work. I could tell you, get in, involved in a small group, and sure, okay, that could work, but... That's not the way that I think that we'll really learn to belong in the church. How can we belong? By understanding more the breadth of your salvation. The breadth of our salvation is different than the depth of our salvation. The depth of our salvation shows us what God has done for me. God has reconciled me. God has redeemed me. God has rescued me from the punishment of hell. These are things that God has done for me. The breadth of our salvation tells us what the gospel has done for us. In Christ, we have been adopted into a new spiritual family. We have one common father. We are spiritual siblings by faith in Jesus Christ. And as the greatest command is to love God and love others, so we must love our father, and invariably, we must love our spiritual siblings. We, the more we love our father, the more we're going to love the family of faith. We're also connected together like the members of a human body are connected together. You know, the anatomy of your hands connected to your wrists and your wrists connected to your arms and your arms connected to your torso. So we are connected together to Christ who is the head. And that means that if you care about your own spiritual health, you will invariably care about the spiritual health of others in the body of Christ. The gospel doesn't allow room for a scenario where you can have your own personal salvation without corporate association. We are more than just saved personally. Salvation isn't just personal. Salvation gives us a new corporate association. We're siblings in a family. We're members of the body. But more than that, we're also bricks of a house being built up so that God might dwell with us. We're also... Slaves working in the same field, doing our duty to obey our one master. This is the second way that we're going to be able to make a real difference in the church. We can make a real difference when we gladly belong within the church. We can make a real difference when we humbly embrace our place as slaves. Do you see yourself as a slave of Christ? Look at verse 12 again. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. The role of a slave to a master is essential to the idea of what it means to be a Christian. Are you embracing that role? The Apostle Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. The most basic confession of the Christian faith is what it says in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Lord means master. If you believe Jesus is Lord, if you trust Christ as your master, what does that make you? What does that make me? It makes us his slaves. Are you living this way? This is the way that we can make a real difference. Not when we fight for control, to have my own willpower, to determine my own course of life, to be my own master of my fate and captain of my soul. The way we make a real difference is when we humbly embrace our place as slaves. There's a well-known poem that has motivated a lot of people to live their own life and follow their own way. A poem by a man named William Erst Henley. The poem is called Invictus. Uh, it was the poem that motivated Nelson and Mandela when he was in prison during apartheid in South Africa. Apartheid was when South Africa legislated state government legislated racial discrimination. And Nelson Mandela was imprisoned during this time. But this poem, Invictus, motivated him to have a sense of control, even though he was in prison. It was written by a man named William Ernst Henley, this poem. And he wrote this himself during a time when Henley had tuberculosis. And the doctors were saying that they might need to amputate his legs. But he wanted to he didn't want to give in and say, oh, I guess I'm going to lose my legs. He wanted to fight back against this illness, kind of in the same way that today we say that people fight when they're struggling with cancer. And I want us to look at the words to this poem because I really do think it, it's really attractive to our culture, but it doesn't represent how the Christian should live. Let's look at the poem together. It says this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man, this is a really attractive way of living for our world to have an unconquerable soul, to have a head unbowed, to be fearless even when we seem like we're losing the fight, to call oneself my own captain and my own master, but I don't think this poem actually genuinely reflects the way that life actually works. Because how many people actually lose their battle to cancer when they are fighting with all that they have? How many people actually lose their legs to sicknesses and disease that they can't control. Our world is really attracted to unyielding control. Yet Christianity looks at this idea from a different perspective. 
and recognizes that we aren't actually in control, but that we are actually all enslaved to something. We may think we're in control, but Christianity teaches us that we are all born enslaved to sin. Every human being is born with a disposition that does not and cannot submit to the good way that God designed humanity to live. This sin that we are all enslaved to apart from Christ is essentially an enslavement to be devoted to the thing which we most desire. Some people are enslaved to the desire of wealth. Others are enslaved to the desire to prove oneself through religious good works. Others are enslaved to the, de- to the desire of their kids' success. Others are enslaved to the approval of others through body image. And you might say, it was like, okay, there are some things I'm devoted to, but how can I be enslaved to them? I chose these things. No one coerced me to do that. Apart from Christ, we are all enslaved in the same way that someone born into slavery and has never seen the outside free world can only know this way of life with the shackles that they were born around their hands. True freedom is not in mastery over our own lives. True freedom comes from submitting ourselves to the one who is master of life. Jesus Christ. And until we recognize that we are all, until we recognize the sin that keeps us enslaved, we will never live in the good way that God wants us to make a difference in other people's lives. You might be trying to maintain control over your life to become something to make a difference. You might be trying to be the next uh, tech genius like Elon Musk. You might be trying to be the next business entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos. You might need to be trying to master your own life to be the next artistic genius like Donald Glover. And you know what? Pursue it. You could probably make a difference, but in the light of eternity, it is all going to be eaten by moths and rust. The only way you will actually make a difference that lasts for the sake of eternity is when you submit to the place of being a slave. And thank the Lord. Jesus Christ paid the price for our liberty with the cost of his own life. Christian, you are free, free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you are free. But now you've been freed and bought into being lit, having life under a new master. So we should live as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 tells us to live. It says, live as people who are free, not using as your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Are you living your life as a servant of God? That church and that alone is where you can make a difference that actually matters. Are you living this way or are you trying to maintain control as your own captain and your own master? Brothers and sisters in Christ, allow God to have his place as master and embrace your place as slaves. Allow God to be master over your career. Allow God to be master over your destiny. Allow God to be master over your finances, over your relationship over your sexuality, over your family, over your reputation, over your education, over your diet, over your 
heart beat and breaths. Let God be Lord. That's where we'll be in a place to be able to make a real difference that impacts eternity. And to my friends who aren't following Jesus, who don't consider Christ their Lord, I would ask you, what hope do you think you have in this type of devotion to the world? Do you know why so many successful people are so devoted to their success? I've heard interviews of very successful people, and they tell very clearly. Because they're afraid of what's going to happen when life ends. And they're afraid of what happens if they lose their success. The best that a secular world can offer into trying to live a life that makes a difference by being your own master is a life that's based on an accidental beginning, a meaningless middle, and a hopeless end. That doesn't need to be your story. You can make a difference that impacts eternity when you embrace your place as slave and do the will of your master. Christ paid the cost so that you could be freed from your sin. He paid the price so that you could be forgiven of your sin and so that you could have new life. Are you living this way? God wants to use each of you to make a real difference. And you can when you gladly belong within the church, when you humbly embrace your place as slaves. And he can use you to make a difference when you fervently pray for one another. That's what Epaphras did. Look at the text with me. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was the pastor of the church, but false teachers came in and were teaching a deceptive message that was diluting the purity of his people's faith. And he tried all that he do, but evidently it wasn't enough. So he went to Paul and he asked Paul to write a letter, but he knew that still wasn't enough. So what was enough to make a difference? He prayed. He prayed that they would stand firm because he knew that these false teachers were taking them out at the knees. He prayed that they would be fully mature in all the will of God because he knew that this false teaching was stunting their spiritual growth. But it wasn't just what he prayed that we need to model to pray. It was how he prayed that we need to model. You see? Look at it with me. Always struggling on your behalf. This struggling prayer is a sense of fervent earnestness. Last week we learned that Jesus prayed in a way that was watchful, that we should model. Watchful prayer is alert and active because it knows the urgency of its circumstances. Well, what about struggling prayer? Struggling prayer is fervent and earnest because it knows the severity of the circumstances. Watchful prayer is motivated to be alert and active because of the urgency of the circumstances. Struggling prayer is fervent and earnest because it knows the severity of the circumstances. And the stakes were high with these false teachers. So Epaphras struggled. This word struggling is used in the New Testament and other contexts too to describe athletic competition. You know, some athletes like gymnasts compete against other gymnasts, but really they're competing for the judge. 
to get the best score. Uh, other athletes, like um, triathlon or runners long, doing long distance, they're competing against other runners, but they're really running against the clock. Other athletes, like those in mixed martial arts, aren't competing against a judge or aren't competing against the clock. They're competing against an opponent that they need to stand face-to-face, fist-to-fist, toe-to-toe, and grapple with in hand-to-hand combat if they're going to be victorious. That's what struggling prayer is like. You know, when I lived in Virginia for four years for university, I met this guy who uh, moderated one of the biggest Christian Facebook pages. And um, I got to go in his house one time and see the page that he moderated and how he would, like, do what he did. And I've always kind of felt really uneasy about these really big Christian Facebook pages online. Because some of the posts they have seem kind of manipulative. I've seen other people, some people in our church sometimes, share posts, and I'm scrolling through my feed, and all of a sudden I see this post of Jesus arm-wrestling Satan. And the post says, 15 likes and Jesus beats Satan. It's like, okay. And these, these posts put really, really cheesy, corny unbiblical views of what it's like to be a Christian. And often when I see really cheesy, corny posts about prayer, you know, with praying hands, these are the stu- this is the stuff that I see online that describes what prayer looks like, right? It's just this like, I'm ascending into the third heaven type prayer, right? Where it's just this tranquil, peaceful, meditate. And you know what? Often prayer has a great sense of peace and solitude in it. But how often do our praying hands look like these next set of hands on the screen? Do your praying hands look like that? Struggling in combat because you know the circumstances are so severe and God is the only one who can answer so you're pleading for him to do it. This is how Jesus prayed. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, listen to this text. It says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard. Do you want to be heard in your prayers? He was heard because of his reverence. What was his reverence described as? Loud cries and tears. When was the last time you were so moved in prayer that the floor below you got wet from your tears? And notice that he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. But we know that Jesus actually died. So it wasn't that he necessarily got the thing he could have wanted. Jesus prayed, let your will be done. And he submitted to God's will. But he was so moved because of the severity of the circumstances in prayer. What moves your heart and burdens your heart so much that you should be praying to God like this? Because it honestly reflects what's in your heart, but you're not going to God with that emotion. It's not like praying like this is like beating my body and like only this is the only time God answers me. No, it's just 
It's just being honest before God with what's actually in my heart. How many of us might have family back in Hong Kong and you're really burdened for their safety right now? Or you know churches back in Hong Kong with all of the rioting are divided because of the politics. Can we be praying like this for the church in Hong Kong? How many of us who have kids who we know are trying to hide their self-harm and substance abuse and we're so burdened for them in our hearts, are we praying to God on their behalf in this way? How many of us have spouses that are unsaved, have family that are unsaved? How many of us see the moral landscape of our culture and just complain about it rather than going to God about it with a burden? That's the way you make a real difference. These are the type of praying Christians that our church needs. When the circumstances dictate it, this is the type of prayer that makes a real difference. Are you willing to pray in this way? God help me learn to pray in this way. We can make a real difference in our church. There's no special professional who God sets apart who says this is the one who makes a difference. God needs people who gladly belong, who humbly embrace their place as slaves, who fervently pray, and then God needs people like this. We can make a real difference in the church when we vigorously work to make disciples. That's what Epaphras did. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says, For I, Paul, bear him, Epaphras, witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. The Apostle Paul was probably the hardest working Christian in the early church. He actually said that about himself, not in a boastful way, but in a humble way in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles, though it was not me, but the grace of God through me. So if Paul who was the hardest working apostle, says that Epaphras worked hard. You know Epaphras is in like the top 1% of hard people, of people working hard for the sake of the gospel. And this, this word hard work in the original language is pretty unique. It's often ref- used in the original language to refer to the toil and distress and pain that comes from physical labor. Are you working that way for the church? And in, it, what did Epaphras do in his hard work? What was his hard work characterized by? Well, certainly prayer. But I think we saw also from chapter 1, verse 7, that he, as the one who taught them the word of God, he worked hard to be able to disciple them with the scriptures. And really, Christian, if you want to make a difference, the two tools in your toolbox are prayer and the word of God. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that we really have. Prayer in the word of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is what the Father uses to make a difference in the lives of others so that we can stand firm and fully mature in all of God's will. It's not just a job, if there ever was a thing, for a professional Christian to pray and to minister God's word. It's all of our jobs. I'm learning to be handy around my home, but there are some things that I'm just not as skilled as other people are. I'm fine in the kitchen. I can cook food fine. I can clean 
the kitchen fine and clean up after food. I'm, I'm learning how to get things done in the backyard. I can hold my own there. I'm kind of being exposed to what happens in the garage, but anything behind a wall with wires, just like, I, I'm pretty ignorant towards it yet, but I don't want to learn. But even if you know all of those things, maybe you're probably not the guy who cut your hair. You probably get a professional to cut your hair or at least ask your wife to cut your hair. Uh, you might be able to do your taxes. Maybe you ask someone else who's skilled to do your taxes. We're not all masters at everything, and we all will have to go to some skilled professional to do something. But the work of disciple-making through prayer and the scriptures is not a job for some professional Christian if there ever was such a thing. It's a job for me. It's a job for you. Just the same, Christian. Ephesians chapter 4 says that my job is to equip you, the saints, so that you can do the work of ministry. Are you doing your job? And are you doing it vigorously, with hard work? Making disciples is painful. It's not easy to go to small group knowing that someone in my group is walking in habitual sin and I need to tell them a hard truth that I know they're not going to want to hear. It's easy to get frustrated when someone doesn't want to listen to me. It's hard to be patient with them even when they're angry with me. It's easy to be frustrated with someone and discount them when they're sinning. It's hard to pray for them and ask that God would it change them. It's Disciple-making is vigorous. Disciple-making work is painful. But it's your job. Leave the kitchen by itself. Leave the backyard to itself. Leave the garage to itself. Leave the wires to itself. And your house will be dilapidated. And condemned. If the work of ministry depends on a few here at the church, it will not grow. We all have the same tools. We all have the same power. No one person in no one position has any more of the Holy Spirit than anyone else. No one person in any one position has any more access to God to prayer or any more truth from God. We all have prayer in Jesus' name. We all have God's word from the will, from his will. We all have the power of the Spirit. Are you doing your job? God wants to use you to make a difference in this church. And when we commit to it, Gladly belonging, humbly embracing our place as slaves, praying and sharing the truth of Scripture. That's where the Lord can use us to make a difference. So allow me to close our time just with a simple question. Who is the one who's made a difference in your life to allow you to be at the place where you are now? Who was it that made a real difference in your life? That if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be where you were right now. If it wasn't for my mom and my dad, if it weren't for my mentors, Ryan Robertson and Michael Miller, if it weren't for my pastors, Paul Whittingstall and George Stavropoulos, there is no way I would be where I am now. They did their job. They knew their identity. And God used them as a tool in his hand to accomplish his work. 
You do not need a platform or a microphone to make a difference. You do not need a large income to be able to be a well-known philanthropist. You do not need an online following. You do not need to be well-spoken. You do not need to be even approachable or compelling or well-dressed. You need to know that you gladly belong in the church because of the gospel. You need to humbly embrace your place as a slave. And you need to get to work vigorously, fervently, with prayer and in the word of God. Are you willing to put in the work? Do you want to be used to make a difference? Let's stand together now as we pray and respond in worship. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation that we have in him. Thank you for the new life that we have in him. Thank you for the freedom that we have in him. Lord God, would you help us? Would you help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've called? Would we do the job that you've called us to do? Would you make a difference through us for the good of others and your glory in the church? Help us to be like the servant that Jesus spoke up in Luke 17. How after he finished all that he was commanded, his only response was, we are only unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Help us to live as duty-bound, love-inspired, grace-oriented followers of Jesus. Help us to have eyes to see those who are hurting so that we would not walk past them, but in love, stop and help them. Help us to have eyes to see those who are going on a trajectory where they might shipwreck their faith and use us to be beacons and a lighthouse of hope that would guide them away from the reef, away from the waves, and back into the harbor so that they might be with you and in the abundance that you offer, Lord God. Use us to sow seeds of hope into all the lives of others that more might know you and love you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.